0: Kevin Pruitt with another episode of Rising Tide Startups. So my guest today is Richard Chapo. Richard, thanks for joining us on Rising Tide.
1: Hey, thank you for having me on.
0: So tell our audience a little bit about Richard Chapo.
1: Oh, uh, let see. I grew up in the horrible environment of San Diego, California. <laughs> uh, yes. Suffering. So, Yes, very much so. Even worse, I lived within about half a mile of the beach, so oh, I'll, wow. I'll, I'll expect no sympathy in the rest of the uh, interview. Um, Ten people just threw their radios the, out the window. Yes, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Yes, I could feel the hate coming through the internet. Um, but I uh, grew up there and uh, went to college out here in California, and then uh, went to Europe and spent a good bit of time doing what a lot of people, if they're lucky enough, can do, which is backpacking around and. I met a fine young lady in Denmark that I saw the future with, and unfortunately, my family disagreed. And one thing led to another, and I ended up coming back to the U.S. and going to law school. Um, With the stated purpose of getting into international law, my grand plan was that uh, in doing that, I would be able to travel uh, quite a bit, which is kind of a passion for me. And uh, so I went through school and did all that and I came out and this new internet thingy uh, had launched and had pretty much put an end to the need to travel because he had online conferencing and what have you. Uh, so I got into complex litigation, defending wrongful death cases, things of that sort. That got a little old after a while. Um, ended up in Russia for a while and then came back and i been practicing in uh, the internet law field uh, since about 2000, late 2000. And um you know, helping businesses uh, hopefully grow without uh, stepping any land on any landmines that are out there in the legal field.
0: So what was the what was the the point or the I guess the intersection that caused you to go from practicing law in other areas to specifically you know focusing on internet?
1: Uh, you know the other areas were primarily litigation the stress level, and the time commitment mm-hmm. was was extreme. Um, and even though we were very successful, I was with a boutique firm, um, practiced in a very specialized area. Um, you know, it was just, it just, it was your entire life. And, uh, so I reached a point in 1999 when I, you know, I was not happy. Um, just, you know, kind of having that midlife crisis, if you will, although, although it was a bit early for me. Uh, and so I went to, I was sabbatical for a year in Russia, and during that time kind of thought about, you know, what was important, what wasn't important. Came back, and I had a friend who I had worked with, a peer, another attorney, who had left and become uh, CEO of an internet uh, company. And he was trying to find somebody to do the legal work, and this is in, you know, the late 2000s, so Mm -hmm. there's nobody, you know, at that point knew anything about it. And uh, so he basically gave me all the work, and so I started learning, and, you know, here we are.
0: So how does one just choose to take a sabbatical year in Russia of all places? With with the world at your doorstep, how, how did you choose? And not only, not just Russia, but Siberia.
1: Uh, yeah, well, it was one of those things where you kind of fell into it. Um, you know, we were defending wrongful death cases at the time and winning a lot of them. Uh, I'm not sure justice was necessarily done in some of those cases. Uh, and it was just, you know, it was just emotionally kind of wipes you out. Mm. It's hard to be objective in those types of cases. So burnout was a huge issue.
0: Sure. But specifically, how did you choose Siberia? I mean, versus going to Bali or Australia or.
1: Well, uh, because I traveled, traveled a lot in life, I preferred to stay off the beat path, and I knew a CEO of a company who was on a charity that worked with uh, colleges in, in Siberia, and they were sending over uh, teachers and, and supplies and things of that sort. And I remember this is 2000, so Russia was still a, a bit more rough than it is sure. now. Um and and so uh, one thing led to another and I was looking for you know a year off where it was going to be cheap quite frankly mm-hmm. and uh, so that's how I ended up over there not knowing a word of uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you know, in a city called Chita which has about 400,000 people and uh, you know at the time was uh, maybe two restaurants um, but it was yeah uh, you know, it was yeah, when I was just basic you know English I'm an American kind of thing.
0: How did you pick Siberia specifically?
1: Sure, so at that time I was suffering from burnout looking around, you know, something else to do. And having traveled quite a bit in my life, I was interested in, uh, you know, off the beaten path locations. And I had a friend who worked with a charity, um, student, or sending teachers and um, supplies over to uh, colleges in Siberia and, so at that time, Russia was still pretty rough coming into capitalism. Um, and so I went over there and taught English a little bit, but mostly taught law and, uh, you know, stood around as the token American so people could uh, you know, see what an American looked like. And uh, so that was how I ended up there for about a year. But it was great. I mean, it was one of the best years of my life. And I know that sounds bizarre when you say Siberia, um, but it was, a, it was an amazing place.
0: So you, you kind of got to. You know, kind of a clear your head space for a year, and then you said you came back and and uh, worked with a, a a friend that is starting an internet company and needed some legal legal assistance. Is that right?
1: Right. So this is 2000, and uh, you know, although the internet had been around for quite a while before then, you were still really looking at you know the foundation for the commercial um, you know version of of the internet as right. we know it now. There was all kinds of basic questions. You know, could you? could you have thumbnails or were thumbnails considered copyright infringement, you know, all those kinds of things. Um, so there were a lot of foundational issues, even though we were having the the, inter- the first internet boom and bust from an investment perspective right around then. Right. Um, you know, a lot of those issues were still out there. So it was very interesting because you know, most law um, is pretty settled in areas. You know, if you're looking at something offline like um, trademarks or copyrights, you know, there's always new issues, but for the most part, you know, the main elements of those law are pretty well settled and with the internet, you kind of had a whole new area and people were trying to figure out, you know, how to, what they could do and couldn't do.
0: Now you've spent time advising companies on what they can do, but have you also spent time representing companies, um, you know, in this space with copyright infringement, you know, cases with trademark infringement, that type of thing. I mean, are, are have you, have you like played a part where you have set any new precedents in these areas?
1: Um, I wouldn't say set new precedent necessarily, but yes, uh, I'm certainly representing. I still do today. Um, a lot of the internet field is um, arbitration oriented. You're going to be dealing with a retired judge um, or an attorney who's experienced in the field, and so the esoteric contractual issues that come up, they understand them. They don't get bored to death by them like a jury does. And <laughs> so, so, so there's a lot of that. But there is some litigation um, with trademarks. Trademarks are kind of specialized areas, so I send that work out to specialists. Ah, uh, copyright. Sometimes I handle it. Sometimes I spend it out, send it out. Uh, I'm a big believer in specialization in law because um, you know the, the legal field is incredibly complex, and there are cases coming down all the time that you know, change certain elements of the law. Um, so the idea of being a general practitioner in the legal field these days is, is kind of difficult to uh, to accept. It. There's just so much complexity.
0: Well, I, I've just spent the last weekend at a uh, at a university mock trial tournament. My my third child is in on a mock trial team in in a school in Texas and so I I mean as much as I was interested in what she was doing it was very difficult to sit there for three hours per session and and really stay focused so I can't imagine being on a jury with with uh, legalese flying around for for hours and days on end so i i understand exactly what you were just saying about the.
1: <laughs> yeah it's a little little bit different than what you see on tv not you know sure, not everything true. <laughs> not everything comes together dramatically you know yeah, could at be the end days. of the hour
0: of the tv show <laughs> the case is <laughs> yeah. closed so
1: yes just so, like romance
0: <laughs> exactly exactly right so let's let's shift a little bit. So when you came back and so you were working with a company, when did you kind of step out on your own and and uh, kind of open your own shop?
1: Uh, well, it was at that point I actually you know set up my own firm to to work with them. Um, you know at that point I could have gone back to the firm I was with previously, um, but uh, you know at that point I just didn't feel like I wanted to get back into that grind. Mm-hmm. Um, so set up my own, you know, sole proprietorship with one client, which is fairly dangerous because if that doesn't go well with that client, then suddenly you're in trouble. Right. <laughs> but uh, uh, you know, I knew enough information about uh, my friend. I thought I could blackmail him sufficiently for a year <laughs> to, right. to keep the business before he came back at me. So I um, uh, did that, and then um, particularly because there just weren't a lot of attorneys at the time that dealt with any of that stuff. You know, word got around pretty quickly that you know I did it, and so um, I was. Kind of shocked at how much work rolled in i didn't know marketing or anything of that sort so it was very lucky right time right place kind of a situation
0: let me take a little bit of a of a little you know right turn here and and uh i mean issues that have come up with i think with a lot of our listeners would be if they've set up their own their own blogs if they set up their own websites so how much trust can you place in, in sites that offer like free images or royalty-free images, that type of thing? I mean, like let's say Google Advanced Image Search, for instance. If you look at, if you type in something to, uh, to look for an image, you can actually set the filter to say free to use for commercial use, free to modify, you know, free to monetize, whatever. How much stock can, can we lay people put into something like that?
1: Well, I'm going to say not a lot. The problem with those systems and with those sites is it's garbage in, garbage out. Um, So, you know, Creative Commons, let's talk about that. It's a very popular license. Um, But the problem that you have with those is there's no way for Creative Commons or you to know when that person first uploaded that, that image. Let's use a photo. They upload a photo. There's no way to know if they had the rights to that photo. And, um, you know, I do a lot of DMCA work, and one of the problems that often arises is photographers will take photos and people will copy them and then upload them to stock photo sites right. to try, try to make money off of them, you know, and they don't have the rights to those images. No, there's no way for those stock image sites to know these are paid sites. Sure. There's no way for them to know, and so that's where the DMCA comes in. So when you get into the free, um, you know the free, free offerings that are out there, um, you know it's <laughs> sounds like a nice concept, but uh, you know it's you have to be very careful. One of the problems you really have to look at, or one of the issues, is where are those sites located? Uh, are they in the United States, or you know, or wherever your jurisdiction is, wherever you are located? If they're not. Uh, and you get you, know, you get a nasty letter uh, regarding using the image in question you know your ability to go back at that site to recover you know any damages that you suffer because of that are muted uh, if that company is in the Philippines or somewhere else, right. you know the cost of going after them is going to so far exceed anything you would get back it doesn't make sense, so you 're kind of stranded um, you know when it comes to content, you know I realize it 's a big issue, but um, you know, creating your own content is, is critical, particularly with smartphones these days. I mean, you don't have to spend that much money to do it. Uh, and people see stock photos all the time and they know what they are and right. they don't really carry, you know, they don't carry much sway. If you do something that's original, particularly video, any of those kinds of things, you know, you're going to get a much better response I realize that's not always viable. But you know, if you can do that, uh, then that's what you want to do. And then that gets rid of all the copyright issues. Um, because you, you know, you're the person who created it, and therefore you have the common law of copyright in it. Uh, and you can also go ahead and register it with the copyright office if you want to. Um, and if you do that in the first 90 days, it gives you a lot of advantages if somebody were to steal your content. Um, so that's probably the best play. If you are going to get it from, you know, a site, I, I would just honestly, I would go ahead and pay um, because the paid sites are going to be quite I'm a bit legitimate. more more responsible. Sure. Right.
0: A DMCA is what, the Digital Media Copyright Act, or what is it? What uh,
1: it Digital Digital Millennium Copyright Act. It's okay. a federal law in the United States. It was enacted in 1998. And basically, um, there are a number of provisions, but the key provision for most websites and apps is Section 512. And what it says, when you boil it down, is a website uh, or an app can't be held liable for copyright infringement. Um for works that are uploaded by a user. So if you think about, you know, Facebook and somebody uploads something to their Facebook page uh, that infringes on somebody else's copyright, Facebook can't be held liable for it. Um, The person who uploaded it could, but Facebook can't. Now they have to follow follow a compliance process and, um, you know, you get into the complexities of that. Um, But if you have a website or an app and you're allowing people to upload information to it, um, you know, even text information or links to other sites, you know, you really want to go ahead and comply with the DMCA. Sure, it's it's very cheap, and you're getting essentially a get out of jail card for anything that your users do.
0: And and I mean, to Facebook's advantage, they just have like a disclaimer or a hold harmless clause or something that says, you know, we are assuming you own the rights to this before you upload it, or or something to that effect.
1: Yes, the terms and conditions of any any credible site is going to have a clause along that line. Right. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely something you want to include. <laughs> so
0: let's let's flip the script. Let's go to somebody like uh Getty Images, for instance. I mean, they they're they're a big player in this space and so um there was actually a, a number of years ago I got a letter from Getty that said this image that you have on your blog that I I got off one of those sites, those free sites. They showed me, you know, this we have this the license to this image and you owe us this amount of money. And, um, I actually just wrote them back and I said, so actually, um, my blog predates the license that you have on the image. So I'm not going to pay you anything. And so we, we, we corresponded back and forth two or three times and they finally just dropped it. But at the number of letters that they would send out, you know, threat letters or whatever, How many of those do you think they actually, um, I guess, collect on?
1: Um, You know, a lot of people panic when they get one of those letters. And so, um, you know, a number of people, yeah, yeah, and be done with it. Uh, You know, it really depends kind of on that, you know, that approach. I mean, they were pretty successful with that. They became a fairly hated company, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and they've tried to move away from that a good bit now. Uh, But there are still copyright trolls out there that will send out that stuff and, if you get those letters the first thing to understand is that copyright law is a bizarre area of law and so uh, there may be leverage issues um, you know that, that will really defeat that so previously I was mentioning you know if you create your own content and you register sure. it within 90, 90 days with the copyright office you get statutory damages okay well those are an amount between 200 and 150 thousand uh, dollars per infringement and a quarter jury would assign those if you don't register within 90 days then you have to prove Essentially, what are we'll called actual damages? Okay. Well, if we take your blog, and let's say there's I don't know 200 pages on the blog, and on one page you have this one image, um, you know what is the actual damage? What's the monetary value of that use? Well, it's going to probably be pretty low, right?
0: Um,
1: particularly if you can find a similar image on a stock photo site, including theirs, um, where you can buy something for a buck. You know, it's it's going to be hard for them to actually prove. Any kind of significant damages and their attorney fees and pursuing it are going to be so much larger than what they would get back. Um, you know, you can usually, you know, get rid of those claims. If they did register within the first 90 days, you know, then you have a problem um, and you have to think about, you know, the best way to get out of it. But, um, yeah, the Getty scare letters were infamous um, <laughs> and received quite a bit of humor. Some of them were there was one case that was actually very funny where they were sending out these letters. And then the person who had actually created the content originally, the photographer, said, I never licensed these to you. Why are you sending out threat letters to other people? And uh, there was this big to-do about <laughs> who actually owned the original photos. And so, Goon, yeah, Getty had all kinds of problems there. I don't know what the resolution was. I was I'm sure there was a confidential settlement yeah, of sorts.
0: Sure. It's, yeah, sure. Uh, that's bad PR when you send out letters. that You own the content when the original, from the creator can... prove otherwise um kind of a david and goliath situation but
1: yes yes well particularly claims of fraud and things of that sort that get into some very unpleasant areas
0: so tell me if if um if you and i are getting on an elevator give me your elevator pitch to your services we just stepped on we're going up 10 floors Uh, a minute later the door is going to ding and it's going to open and we're going to walk our separate ways but You've got me as a captive audience for a minute. Tell me tell me exactly what the uh, what services you, you could provide me as a as a solo business owner or as somebody that's engaged in the internet.
1: Well the services I'm gonna provide that are different from other attorneys is that I'm a proactive attorney. So I'm going to work with your business. I'm going to get an idea about your business functions. I'm going to treat it as though it's my own. And I'm going to give you guidance on how to avoid problems. Whereas with most attorneys, the situation is going to be that you're only going to go to them after you have a problem, at which point, which point you're going to be paying a lot of money. Uh, You know, with my Practice the approach is to try to help you avoid, you know, as many of the potholes as possible, so you can focus on growing your business uh, instead of worrying about all these other issues. Uh, and that's really my role. So if you get a nasty letter, you get some kind of inquiry, you send it over to me, and I take care of it. Um, but otherwise, I'm going to be sending you guidance on things that you need to do to avoid new laws, some new case law, and new regulations. And you know, you're going to have to follow those things. But if you do, you know, you're gonna be so far ahead of any of your competitors when it comes to risk um, that you know you should be able to grow without too much concern.
0: Now, is this normally like a retainer service or is this kind of a one-off or uh, how, I mean, and how many companies can you work with at a time?
1: You know, it depends on the clients. Um, it depends what they need. You know, if they want it to be ongoing, I have clients of that sort, and I do have other clients, it's one-off. Um, most clients that try to pick up, you know as early in the process as possible and then just grow with them I have a lot of clients that have been with me for you know 10 years or more And so that's worked out pretty well, but occasionally people just need something. You know the joint venture agreement or something of that sort um, And as far as the number of clients um, I don't really have a number because it depends on you know how much work each client needs um, but uh, you know, I'm still taking clients, but I'm not like desperate for them in, uh, sure. in any way, shape or form. You know, for me, one of the, the differences in how I practice law now is I really take life balance into account. Um, so I'm not doing the 80 hour week. And frankly, unless you're going to offer me a billion dollars, I'm not going to, um, <laughs> you know, I, that that nearly killed me. And I'm just I'm not going to do that anymore. Um, so I'd work, you know, pretty much 40 hours and that's it. And uh, so, you know, I take clients on and off based on that. But I'm also California-based, and licensed in California, so a lot of people and a lot of the listeners, if they're in other states, I wouldn't be able to help them anyway, so that mm-hmm. kind of acts as a natural filter.
0: Now, did, does that preclude you from even discussing like a generic, um, I mean, I would think that, that the internet is, that the states, or the state of domicile would have very little impact on um, what you have is, you know, exposure you would have, liability exposure you would have on the internet. Is that, is that a misnomer or? Uh...
1: That's generally correct. You know, the, the problem with the practice of law is we're regulated by state and those state entities um, they're supposed to be non-profit and not to have any real political ambitions. The truth is something different. And so they're, mm-hmm. they're constantly trying to protect their, their domicile. You see it in the medical field as well. Uh, and then you have the groups like LegalZoom that are out there challenging that. And that's kind of all up in the air right now. LegalZoom's been pretty successful at getting around a, a lot of the uh, practicing without a license claims, but they also until recently at least were primarily form oriented um, now right. they do offer some attorneys but those attorneys usually are licensed in the particular state um, and so that's kind of how they're getting around it but it's it's an area of uh, you know significant argument particularly because if you start getting into federal issues uh, where you're talking about federal law well federal jurisdiction usually is you know wider than the state it kind of right. depends on how they define it but it gets into esoteric areas that I'm pretty sure the audience doesn't want to hear about <laughs>
0: Well, I want, to, I want to drill down in one more thing that I, I read somewhere on uh, either a blog article or, or maybe in your about, uh, maybe the about page on your site, but you were talking about um, just kind of prognosticating on what it may look like when I think that the exact phrase was something like when countries divide up the Internet. Can you expand on that just a little bit?
1: Sure. So the concept is known as uh, the splinternet. And anybody can do a search on Google or wherever and look, look up articles on it. But the basic idea is that we had this utopian view of the Internet um, when it was originally created. We'd have a borderless um, platform where information and what have you could be exchanged. And, uh, you know, it was generally referred to as the Wild Wild West period of the Internet. Sure. Um, now we're kind of in the Empire Strikes Back stage. Um, and what has happened is we're seeing the European Union and governments in different areas Um, You know are coming forth and trying to claim their space online and the the issue with that is that different regions have different values Um, So for instance, you know privacy um, There's really kind of a world war going on over privacy right now, which sounds bizarre Um, But privacy in the European Union is a highly valued um, Human right it's part of their charter. It's part of you know carries the weight of what we might consider free speech here in the United States Mm -hmm. Privacy in the United States is, frankly, a joke. Um, privacy law certainly is. Uh, we do have federal laws for specific types of privacy. So, for instance, your health records um, or if you're trying to collect information from kids under 13 under the child, uh, Children's Online Privacy Protection right. Act, we have those. But we don't have a national privacy law, and most people here, frankly, don't care um and so when the eu passes these you know enacts something like the general data protection regulation the gdpr which happened this year it's very restrictive you have to have a legal basis for collecting personal information from people and so on and so forth and you contrast that with the us where there's no law (laughs) There's, there's there's very little law so you have these companies how are these companies going to deal with that and for smaller companies what what people are expecting and what we're seeing is, um, you know, they're starting to have to make decisions about where do they want to be present? Because if you only have 10 sales a year or hundred sales a year from Europe, well, do you want to spend the money and time and effort to comply with their regulations exactly. or do you want to block them? Yep. And you know, and this is happening even with larger companies. Um, if you're in Germany now and you try and pull up Los Angeles times website, you get a page that says, I'm sorry, you can't access this website. And the reason for that is they're not going to comply with the GDPR because um, newspapers have difficulty raising money online, and the way they generate it typically involves a lot of cookie and web beacon technology, which is just not going to work under the GDPR. And you know, exporting goods is another place that does this. Um, You'll see in Russia, Russia has you know rules that say if you're going to collect information from our citizens. You have to maintain that information on servers here in Russia, and you, you know, and you can play the ominous music behind that. <laughs> um, and so, you know, Google and Yahoo, of course, capitulated, but LinkedIn, of all companies, did not. And so, for a good period of time, you know, you couldn't view LinkedIn in Russia. I don't know if that's still the case with Microsoft taking them over, but. Um, you know you get that kind of thing and then in China and Asia you're seeing you know, Anonymity take hits which you know, maybe is a good thing if you read some of the comment sections on, right. on various blogs um, But <laughs> you're seeing this this kind of recalculation as to how the internet is, is, is going to work as a worldwide medium I think you'll always be able to exchange information But from the economic side if you're running a, an e-commerce site or you're selling online You know that's becoming a more complex issue Uh, And unfortunately, you know, I think at some point for the smaller companies at least, you know They're gonna have to choose regions. They want to operate in Mm -hmm. the irony the irony of these laws is they're really aimed at the big boys The Google's and Facebook's of the world, but those are the only companies that have the financial resources to actually comply with all of this Uh, And so you know the the irony is it kind of backfires and it gives those companies even more power if you will uh, and more market share um, You know to control the web so Kind of going to be interesting to see how it plays out, but uh, yeah, That's there are a lot the of issues.
0: Dark and... conspiratorial side of things. That you...
1: <laughs> well, it, it is, you know, and it's, um, you know, I talked to somebody in Europe who works with, uh, you know, the Article 29 Working Party, who was the party that drafted the GDPR, and they were just flabbergasted at how clueless they were. Mm. Um, you know, some of the requirements of the GDPR. So if you think about WordPress sites, which are very common, obviously, um, you know you have your, you have your main software, and then you have all these plugins well under the gdpr you 're supposed to be getting agreements from all of those plug companies um, that they're essentially that they 're complying with the gdpr and, and are meeting all these different requirements which nobody 's doing um, and <laughs> and it 's just it 's ludicrous there 's no difference in that regulation um, for the requirements for a company as large as Google versus a requirement for somebody who 's running you know, how, how to grow a tomato blog that has an AdSense article on, or an AdSense ad on it. They're the same requirements and it, it's just ludicrous. And, you know, and that's one of the reasons why if you look at companies in any niche, um, you know, none of the top 20 or 30 companies tend to be located in Europe. Uh, you know, the regulations are just so overboard that, you know, people leave. That's kind of the first step. Um now you can that to other you know, jurisdictions. The U.S. is, as much as we complain about regulations, we're actually pretty, pretty free of regulations here. Um, you know, and then other areas, South America. There's been talk about you know, them passing things that are going you know, to become much more restrictive. So, it, it's, if people are listening and they're interested, I would just do, you know do research for uh, the SplinterNet, set up a Google alert for SplinterNet, and just you'll know, get an idea of how things are developing over time.
0: Well, thanks for for unpacking that because um, I mean that's that's certainly something that is in your area of expertise that uh, the majority of us would would have little or no knowledge of, but uh, it's something to consider, you know, especially as you're uh, as you're working in a global setting and and the internet certainly is, and I mean even on this podcast I've interviewed people from you know ten different countries and you know six continents and. Um, just amazing just the, how easy it is to access people on the other side of the globe. And, uh, but as, as you're working with people and as, you're, um, as you have worked with people in the past, what would you say would be like the top two pain points that you see people encounter um, in, in trying to comply or uh, what, are the, what are the big hurdles or the big obstacles that we need to really be aware of um, as we're setting things up online, as we're setting a blog up, as we're setting our company website up, that type of thing. What, what's one or two real big, big uh, rocks that you would touch on?
1: Um, well, instead of talking about the common things that are raised, you know, incorporating and that kind of thing, um, you know, I, I would think that uh, we'll mention three. One is copyright, which we already discussed. You know, make sure you know where you're getting your content from. The second thing is if you're setting something up online and you're doing it with another person. Uh, make sure that you get either a founder's agreement or a partnership agreement, something of that sort, anything in writing that states basically the obligations of each party. And then what's going to happen if one of them doesn't meet those obligations? Um, that's one of the biggest things that we see all the time. People call, they have you know three partners and one of the partners isn't you know carrying their weight and how do you get rid of them and this, that, and the other. And if there isn't something in writing, it can be, Rather difficult to do because most states are going to require you to file a lawsuit and then you're going to have a judge who probably doesn't know anything about your business or the internet or your niche, you know, trying to decide how to extract somebody from the site or from the business. It becomes expensive and at the end of that process, almost nobody is happy with the results and (laughs) and so it's just kind of a nightmare. Uh, The second thing is as you grow, um, making that, it's not a legal issue, it's a practical issue, as you grow – Making that leap from "this is mine, I control everything" to "this is a business, and I need to outsource things." Um, I see a lot of people that spend tons of time on their uh, their sites that they don't really need to, and they're burning out. Um, you know, they're not outsourcing things that other people could take care of. Um, you know, that would relieve them a lot of the burden. And I'm not talking about substantive things like, you know, doing videos or something of that sort. But I mean, you can outsource a lot of you know, the technical aspects of running a site that you need to do, bookkeeping, all these kinds of things, you know, basically picture whatever it is you hate doing and see if there's somebody else that can do those things. Um, because, you know, if you're working 70 or 80 hours a week, you know, I don't care how much you like the subject, there's a pretty good chance at some point, you know, you're going to get sick of it. Sure. Uh, sure. So I think that's a that, good word.
0: Uh, those, those are all yeah. three. I, I appreciate you uh, in such a succinct way, you know, coming up with these three and, and uh, I mean, they're all extremely important, and I, I love the diversity, you know, of the things that you've touched on too. It's it's pretty comprehensive. And um, as you've as you've kind of shifted over and, and kind of found, uh, it sounds like you found your equilibrium a bit in with uh, kind of a work life balance. Um, what what's a, a piece of advice you would you would give yourself if you could go back, you know, pre 1999, pre 2000? Um, that you wish you knew that, you know, now that you wish you knew then that, that, uh, or maybe something that you really learned, you know, in your sabbatical year, that is just a real sound piece of advice that you think would would really benefit our listeners. Um, I
1: think believe in yourself. Well, two things, really believe in yourself, and focus on what interests you. Um, You'll see endless articles online about what makes you happy, happiness is kind of a moving target. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I think maybe more focus on what interests you, because if it interests you, um, you know, you're not really going to look at it as a job. I mean, certainly there'll be days that you will, um, but it'll be something that, you know, keeps your attention. Because on the Internet, one of the biggest problems that everybody has, myself included, is focus. There's so much information. There's so many different things. You know, you, you end up wasting an incredible amount of time. Um, you know, just trying to get through everything. So, the more focused you are, the more interested you are in something. You know, that's all naturally going to come together, and you can you can proceed from there. And then believe in yourself, because frankly, nobody else is. Um, when push comes to shove, I mean, you have spouses in those groups that certainly will support you. But ultimately, you know, you're the one that has to make the leap. You're the one that has to make these decisions. And as long as you have a, a basis for doing that, uh, you know, something that you've, you've clearly thought about. And you go ahead and do it, even if the decision is wrong or it turns out poorly, you know, that's fine. That's that's life. That's what's mm-hmm. called experience. Mm-hmm. So, so believe in yourself and, you know, move forward. I, in my practice when I was in the mid-90s and I was doing, the, you know, the complex litigation and I started to really hate it, you know, I kept doing it. And, you know, for another three years and it wasn't even the money. It was just, you know, I didn't have any momentum to go do something else. It was like, right. well, what else am I going to do? Um, you know, and so I was very late in that process I should have done it much earlier uh, and should have looked around and I just didn't I don't know it was lazy a lack of ambition or whatever it was um, but you know don't make that mistake if you're not happy you know the time to start looking around is now
0: it's a bit of a trap isn't it I mean kind of an income trap and you, you start seeing and I've added a zero here to the uh, to the bank account and, and I've actually maybe even spent myself into a certain you know earning bracket that I, that I have to make to maintain my lifestyle. And um, I mean, it sounds like to me that you really had to go through that, the whole idea of how much is enough.
1: Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And particularly in that type of legal practice, uh, you know, the income does reflect, you know, the commitment. Right. Uh, and so you are making good money and that is absolutely part of it. And that certainly was, you know, how am I gonna replicate this? Um, but the realization that, you know, if, if I went with a, a less strenuous law practice, that I didn't really need to replicate it um, because, you know, it was more of an overall life changer. You know, I don't go out and buy a new car every three really? years or lease a new car or any right. of that stuff. I, I don't need it. Um, yeah, And so, yeah, that was kind of an overall life change. But you're absolutely right. Particularly if you're making healthy money, then it gets really hard because <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you have all the things you don't like. But on the other side, hmm, you know, nice paychecks. So. Exactly. Uh, that's certainly certainly a big issue. Well,
0: Richard, is there anything that we haven't touched on? That you want to kind of wrap up and with and and uh, let people know how they can find you online?
1: Uh, sure, you can always find me online at uh, my website, which is SoCal, like Southern California, SoCalInternetLawyer.com. dot com. I'm also on LinkedIn all the time um, with my name. It's very unique, so you will be able to find me. Uh, and then you know, as far as any parting thoughts, you know, the internet is. Even with the regulations and the changes in the law and everything else is still one of the most amazing new platforms for businesses to launch. Sure. i mean it it is just set up for startups. I mean, at no point in history has it been as convenient and easy you know to launch a startup. So if you have a viable idea and you've done the planning, go for it. I mean, seriously, um, it, it's you can compete with the big boys relatively easy, and um you know so so have some confidence and fire it.
0: And you can pivot on a dime if you need to. Absolutely. Well, Richard, uh, don't call me El Chapo. I have uh, very much enjoyed our time today, and and uh, <laughs> just thanks for. Uh, I actually sent him an email and called him Neil, so I've called him all kinds of things. But uh, he's his, in his graciousness, he has he's allowed my uh, old age and senility to to not be a hindrance to our interview here. So I just really <laughs> appreciate your time and and just really speaking uh, just just sharing your wisdom and your experience with us and with our listeners and really playing your part in just helping all boats rise in a rising tide. Richard, thanks, and have a great day.
1: Well, thank you for having me on.